Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Our Bible reading today will be taken from the book of James, chapter 4, reading from verse 13 to verse 16. I'll end the reading by saying this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. Now listen, you will say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Dami. Uh, Yes, Dami. I did it again. It happened in the first service. I did it again. I forgot something. I forgot something. Can you help me with my folder in the bag? Anybody there? I keep forgetting these things. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, now that we're off to a very good smooth start, well, good morning once again, and uh, particular welcome to those who are worshipped us for the first time, and I know some of us have also come to um, do the special thing of dedicating some of the babies that uh, the Lord has given us, and so we we'll look forward to that. At the end of this service, we'll have something um, for that, but I do hope that uh, you still be blessed. Uh, uh, you came to bless the baby, but we hope that you'll be blessed by the sermon. Can we just lift our hands to the Lord to pray, um, asking the Lord to give us the light of His Word, ask Him to illuminate our minds, ask Him to convict our hearts, ask Him to speak a word of liberation a word of liberation is the one that sets people free he's the one that proclaims the acceptable year of the Lord Lord we invite you into this space you are already here but we want to be able to open our hearts in a consensual way to say speak to us we are listening speak to us change us O oh God from the inside out Holy Spirit, come and reside. Come and reside and, and break down our defenses, break down our walls. So, Lord, we ask that the meditation, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer, to which we all say, Amen. Amen. So, welcome everyone. We're doing um, a mini-series. We've been going through the book of Mark, the second uh, part, second quarter of the book of Mark, and we're pausing that for a while just to um, look at certain things that fit with the the theme of our year. The theme of our year is what we call inside out. Mm -hmm. But I should start this sermon by making, I, I I won't call it too controversial, but things are hard, right? I think we know things are hard generally in the economy. I know, you know, usually when things are very hard for most people, some people, things get better. And some of you are here and things are going better. But I'm speaking in general. Things are hard. And we keep looking to God to change the situation of the country. And I believe that God will keep hearing our prayers. Amen? But here's the thing. Sometimes when we focus on the difficulty of the moment, we are not able to see the progress of the period. Focus on difficulty of the moment, we're not able to see the progress and period. And I actually think we have progressed. I think we've progressed. You may not agree with me, but 
Let me prove to you. I'll just use one thing, one example. And it's really about cars. Cars. I mean, also Nigeria, we progress. Let me ask you a question for you who doubts me. How many of you today or within the last one week, right? I'm just going to ask you if you've done any of these three things. How many of you have done any of these three things? You knew you were about to go out. And so when you went out to your car, first thing you did was to open your bonnet and pour water in your radiator. How many of you? Anybody? How many of you have, uh, uh, you, you checked, you gauged your engine oil? Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Okay, one or two. Right? Uh, how many of you, you knew you were about to go out at 7.10? So at 7 a.m., you started the car and you started to warm it. Just, just warm it. How many of you have done that? Like, okay, there are about two, three people that have not progressed here. The Lord will elevate you. Uh, but for most of us, we've not done anything like that. You know why? We've progressed. We have progressed. Our cars are better. You know, we don't have to think about all these different things. Because before, when I was growing up, ah, every day you were anticipating that your car could overheat. So you poured water in the radiator. And then you even kept a keg of water in your boot. I, I know you have progressed, but let's shame the devil. That was in the past. You, am I talking to you? We knew what engine or you, you put it inside, you clean it, then you put it inside. They say, ah, water. You now go to the filling, sta uh, the filling station. Not to buy petrol, you bought the engine oil. We have progressed. Somebody say, I've progressed. Uh, we've progressed. But you know, some kinds of progress lead to a kind of regress. You start to know some things, and as a result of that, you start to diminish your knowledge of some things. Take, for instance, this issue. Because the cars have gotten better, we don't lift the bonnet again. And because we don't lift the bonnet again, most of you have never heard of the word called Kickstarter. Do you know what a Kickstarter is? Some of us don't know what an alternator is. If I showed it to you now, you would not know. Some of you, if I say carburetor, you say, isn't that French? You don't know it. Lack knowledge, we have regressed. In other words, what I'm trying to say in summary is this. Even though we know how to work a car, we don't know how a car works. And in many ways, when it comes to pleasing God, particularly in the areas of not doing the actions that displease the Lord, which we call sin, many of us know how to work sin. We don't know how sin works. Let me give you an example, or let me illustrate it this way. We know that the Bible says sin is breaking God's command. So when you, ex when you experience sinful actions, what you are doing is that you, you have broken, thank you, you have broken, uh, uh, watch the part is there. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit expensive just so that uh, we don't want, and it's not insured, sadly. Okay, so we, we know that we are, uh, that we, we commit the sin ourselves. And the Bible says, whoever breaks the law has sinned. And so, maybe sometimes we think, ah, the only way to deal with sin is look at ourselves. But the Bible also says that all evil in the world, including our sin, is motivated by the kingdom of darkness, Satan, and demons. Now, depending on which place you fall, some people are more motivated by trying to deal with it here. Some people are more motivated by trying to deal with it here. But the fact that we have these two means something like this. That on the one hand, you cannot just attribute all sinful actions to Satan and demons. You know that, ah, issue new. It's not me. It wasn't me. How did, how did you fall? How, I don't even know how I slept with eight women that are not my wife. <laughs> it, was the, it was the who? It was the devil. One day, they would say, hey, hey, hey. five of that was me. Three of it was you. Come on. So we can't attribute everything to the demons. But if the Bible is true, then we cannot cut off sinful activity at all from demonic activity. So how do we understand how sin works? How do these two things work together? Because if we are going to be defeating sin and we want to be the kind of people that please God, we have to understand a bit more about how it works. Let me tell you a bit about how it works. Those two things are true, but they work in tandem. In fact, what happens is that they actually overlap. And the way Satan empowers it is through what we call idols of the heart. 
Many times we think about idols and we think about idols as these graven images that are there. The Bible talks about Chemosh, about um, um, uh, Dagon and all these things. Some of us say, Amadioha, Yemoja, all of these different things. But Ezekiel 14 verse 3 tells us something about idols. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel 14 verse 3. He says, son of man, these men have set up idols. Where? In their hearts. Idols actually work in our hearts. What are idols? Idols are ultimate, uh, good things that we have turned into ultimate things. Good things that we have turned into ultimate things. They're not bad things. They're good things that we turn into ultimate things. So when we think about, oh, sorry, I now understand why you didn't bring it. All right, come and take it again. When we think about idols of the heart, <laughs> I'm putting it to work. When we think about idols of the heart, one way we think about it is icebergs. Icebergs. Who remembers icebergs? I know we don't have icebergs in this country. You've never seen an iceberg before. But one thing we know is that iceberg crashed Titanic. I mean, uh, Titanic is that one. But when you look at an iceberg, if you think this is all that makes up an iceberg, you'll be wrong. In fact, let me show you what really makes up an iceberg. An iceberg, what we normally see is the surface, the surface iceberg, but beneath the water, there is a larger part of the iceberg, the deep iceberg. That's exactly how idols of the heart work. They are the idols of the heart that we readily know. We call them surface idols, but they are the idols of the heart that work deeper, at a deeper level. What are the surface idols? They are the ones we readily think about. So when we think about money, when we think about sex, when we think about power, when we think about ethnicity or nationality, when we think about maybe our reputation, these are the things we readily think about that drive us to sin. But the deeper idols, the more dangerous ones, the larger ones that are motivating those ones are six of them that I can readily think about. And if you ever want to memorize them, just think two multiplied by CAS, two multiplied by CAS. That is two C's, two A's, and two S's. What are they? Control, comfort, approval, acceptance, satisfaction, and security. Do you want to know how sin works? Maybe I can take you through. Just why do we lie? Why do we lie? Well, let me give you an example of why we lie. Sometimes we lie, sinful action, to protect, when we've entered into a challenging situation, to protect our reputation. Surface idol. But why are we trying to protect our reputation? We're trying to protect our reputation because we want to use that reputation to be accepted by a certain group of people. We want to be accepted. We want those people to admire us and to still be within. But why do we want to be, and that acceptance is a deep idol. Why do we want to be accepted by a group of people? Because Satan has told us that only when you can go to that club, only when you are invited to that party, only when you grow with these people can your life truly matter. You see how sin works. And so that's why we want to go through this mini-series. We want to not just discover how these idols work, but how the gospel, how the power of the Spirit enables us to defeat these idols. Because if you remember our theme for the year, Inside Out, and we've been saying that the best way to go outside and transform the world, the way God wants us to transform the world, is when we go inside with God. But can I tell you a secret? The more you go inside with God, the more God takes you inside your heart so that he can uncover and unmask the idols that are there and then he can shine the light of his gospel on it so that you can be truly free and you can truly transform the outside. How many of us want that? And so today, we're going to start and we're going to look at one deadly, deadly, deadly idol. The idol of control. We're going to look at the idol on control under these three headings. Discovering control, taking control, and then losing control. Discovering control, taking control, losing control. So let's start. First one, um, discovering control. Verse 13 again, James 4. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city. Spend a year there. Carry on business and make money. Stop. Who is he describing? He's describing people that plan. 
What's wrong with that? Do you not plan? Don't you have a plan for your life? Some of us who run businesses, have, don't you have a plan for this year? If you don't, you are responsible. I believe in planning. For those of us who are married, don't you have a plan for in improving the quality of your relationship? For those of us who are working as employees, don't you have a personal development plan? How can you not have a plan? For those of us who are in relationships, don't you have a plan? For those of us who are not in relationships, don't you have a plan? We all need to plan. Because we learned it when we were growing up, and I still think it is correct till today. He who fails to plan, yeah, what? what do you have a problem with planning? The Bible certainly doesn't have a problem planning, let me tell you, because, for instance, in Psalm 20 verse 4, it says this, that may the Lord give you the desires of your heart, and may he what? Establish or make all your plans succeed. I often think about it this way, because what it's basically saying is that if you have desires without a plan, it will be futile. So I like to think about it this way. You know, the Bible says that without a vision, the people perish. It's true, but without a plan, the vision perishes. There's nothing wrong with planning. And if you don't believe me, the reason why the Bible positively speaks about planning is because the God in whose image we are created is a planner. When you think about how God wants to flourish his people because he wants us to flourish. Do you think he just does it in a haphazard way? No. For I know the plans that I have for you. They are not plans to harm you. They are plans to do what? Give you a hope and a future. God, they plan. Even the best thing that God can give to you Salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, who went on a cross for, on the cross for us. Do you think what happened? Yes, sin. What am I going to do with this sin? Uh, ah, let's throw this one here. Let's throw this one. No. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 tells us very simply, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you. How? By God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God isn't against planning. Plans are good. And if plans are good, then control itself is good because through planning, we exercise a form of control. We plan, we try to execute the plan. What we are basically trying to do is to control things. Control isn't bad. Planning isn't bad. So at, when we look at verse 13, what's wrong with it? Now look at his interpretation of 13 in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is what? Evil. Ah, uh -uh. wait a minute. He calls it arrogant schemes that produce evil boasting. Question. How do plans become schemes? King Asa was one of the better kings of Judah. When I say kings of Judah, it's because at some point the kingdom of Israel split into the northern kingdom, Israel, kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom, kingdom of Judah. So King Asa was one of the better kings. You can read about his story in 2 Chronicles 14, 15, um, all the good things he did, right? In 2 Chronicles 14, verse 2, it even says that Asa did what was right and good in the eyes of the Lord. He was a good king. If you read in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, talks about all his reforms. He ruled Judah for 41 years and for most of those 41 years it was hunky-dory, except the last six. He did very well but the last six. What happened in the 35th year? In the 35th year, the king of Israel came against him. He was going to war against him. He had already put him in a very tight corner such that he was in trouble. So what did Asa do? He came up with a plan. He thought about the king of Aram, who you can call Syria later, and he said, he reached out to him. I know you have a treaty with the king of Israel, but guess what? Let me offer you these treasures from our treasuries, and let's make a treaty instead, so that this guy will leave me. And so, they formed a treaty. Do you know what happened? It worked. He backed away. The king of Israel backed away. Fantastic plan, we will say. Excellent diplomatic maneuvering. What's wrong with the treaty? 
well, in verse 7 of 2 Chronicles, chapter, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, in verse 7, a prophet or a seer called Hanani went to meet him. And this is what he said. Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. You know what he was saying? Plans are not bad. But this particular plan revealed something. You relied on the king, not the king of kings. It was an arrogant scheme. Hopefully that prophetic word would have helped him and that he would have changed and amended his ways. But he was faced with another situation. This was a personal one. Three years later, he was ill. And like all of us, when we are ill, what do you do? You think of a plan. You think of your health insurance. His own health insurance, his own HMO was that he had developed, you know, the kingdom so that they were now pursuing science. And so they had physicians. And he thought, why not I call the best physician around? And he submitted to physicians. But here's what he says in verse 12 of the same 2 Chronicles 16. He had a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek what? Help from the Lord, but only from physicians. Does God have a problem with treaties? No. Does God have a problem with physicians? No. But through Asa's actions, you know what he was showing? He was showing that he depended on physicians rather than the great physician. It was an arrogant scheme. And so how do plans become schemes, guys? An idolatrous plan, or a plan becomes an idolatrous display of control when it stops you from ultimately relying on God, from ultimately relying on God. The plan should be there, but God cannot be divorced from the plans. Let me give you two Proverbs. Proverbs 16 verse 9, it says, In their hearts, humans plan their cause, but it is the Lord that establishes their steps. Do you see it? Or let me give you another one, Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You see, if you go back to that, that book, that, um, um, the passage in James, we see three wills at work. In verse 13, we are told, you who says, I will, or we will. So there is, we will. In verse 14, there is what will happen. In verse 15, there is the Lord's will. Our wills, the Lord's will, and what will happen. When we plan in a way that is idolatrous, you know what we are saying? That what will happen is ultimately dependent on how I will plan. But it is the Lord's own that comes to pass. Amen? So how do we deal with this? Because God doesn't want us to play God. How do we start to deal with it? Well, the first thing we have to deal with it is we need to discover whether we are idolatrous people when it comes to control. And I actually think there are about two broad categories of people in that regard. One, we've already started looking at them, planners. The second, we call complainers. Let's take the first one. How do you know whether you're an idolatrous planner. Usually, people who are idolatrous planners are people who are in a form of leadership, people who have to write plans for people and have to execute them. How can I know whether I have started to delve into that? Let me give you about nine symptoms. There are a whole lot more, but nine symptoms to be able to discover yourself. First one, you're a poor listener. You're a poor listener. So, you're not taking feedback from anybody. You're not taking even input from anyone. You, I, I just need to plan. I can do this all by myself. But that is also linked to the second one, which is this. You are inflexible and not easily adaptable. Your plans don't easily, they're not easily flexible. It's good to set a path, but can you change when new data comes? Can you change when there's a, a, some input? Can you adapt it? No, you're like, you don't know how much research and everything I've put towards this thing. And so with that sense of certitude, you start inviting people. On the one hand, you are trying to tell them, hey, what do you think about this plan? But you are trying to get an immediate response. Buy in now, buy in. That's the third one. You push for immediate answers. Why? Because the fourth one, you get easily irritated when people don't buy in or where they challenge your plan. You don't believe that they are trying to make their plan better, that they are trying to challenge the plan. You think they are challenging you. It is idolatrous because I cannot distinguish you from your plan. 
So you get irritated by every challenge, by every non-buy-in to the plan. Can I go to the fifth one? Here's another one. You take a long time to recover from a plan that didn't work or from the pain of the plan that didn't work. So when the thing you try to predict or the change you try to execute, it doesn't come to pass, you are not disappointed. You are devastated. All you need to do is to come up with a better plan. But now you are mourning the fact that all that I have thought about didn't work. Am I speaking to somebody here? You don't have to raise your hand up. But please, if you are the spouse of the person, don't point to them. Can I give you a few more? Even when the thing has failed, you don't readily admit your failures. You don't want to admit it to others. You know it's failed, but you can't admit it to others. And does have a devastating effect on people. And let me tell you how. Maybe you are the kind of person who plans and the things work. You are identified. You've been getting promoted for things like that. Do you know the problem? You end up becoming a bad leader because people will not grow under you. You will be a micromanager. You keep just telling people, just do it. Just do it. You keep telling them the what. You don't tell them the why. And if you don't tell them the why, you are really basically telling people what to fish, not how to fish. You are giving them fish, but you are not teaching them how to fish. So people don't grow under you because your leadership is just about instruction. Instruction, just do this. But even probably most devastating is the last two things. If you really want to know, if you say, yeah, that's not me, that's not me. The last two things, you don't pray enough. Remember, it is God's purpose that will stand, even though humans plan their heart. You don't pray enough. Now some of us say, ah, but I pray. No, you go to church and they tell you to pray. So you have now found a way of incorporating prayers. But let me show you how you can know. It is, not, it is the plans that you are de um, depending on, not God. If prayers are your last resort, recourse, uh, so, um, yeah. last resort, right? If prayers are dutiful, you shall, okay, let them not say that we didn't pray. You know, it's time to have that meeting. Oh, yeah, you know, Nigerian offices. Let us open with prayer. The person, I'm not saying you should always open with prayer, but the person now passes 20 seconds. You say, Abba, it's not prayer. 20 seconds now. Ah, let's close with prayer as well. I pray. Is somebody seeing themselves here? Let me tell you somebody who sees himself here. Yours truly. I'm a recovering, idolatrous, planner, I'm a addict, uh -huh. a recovering idolatrous planner addict. God is helping us. But we're still dealing with it. And I've been working on this for a number of years. I hope I've made progress. But something recently happened that showed me, ah, oh God, there's still work to be done. Maybe I'll use it to make first an announcement that some of you, it's a bit of good news. That some of you know it already, but it's good to just let you all know. So, my wife and I are expecting another baby. Fantastic. When we found out, this isn't how I was reacting. I wasn't reacting that way. Let me tell you about myself. Um, I discovered something about 10 years ago, and I don't know if you guys know this. You know, sometimes certain things happen to you, and you can tell how you really think about that thing by the way you feel. There are just certain sensations. I don't know how to explain it. So, if you are hungry, you know that the... The feeling of hunger is not the same feeling of thirst, isn't it? So you can be hungry, you know what that is. You can be thirsty, you know what that is. You can be horny, you know what that is. You can be, you know, different kinds of feelings. Did I say honey? I meant congee. If you can have congee, sorry. Oh, God. The first service worked out well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Congee. Congee. Different feelings. I discovered the feeling of absolute dread of mourning something. Absolute dread of mourning something. In the last 10 years, I've gone through about three things where I'm not talking about disappointment. I'm not talking about bad news. I'm talking about things that have major consequences. And I discovered that there's a way I feel. So one of them, I'll just give you an example. One of them, a number of years ago, uh, for some of us who have been in church for a while, you know about what was happening at this time. But even though I didn't reveal it, but there was a time when I was having a number of neurological symptoms that weren't looking good. So eventually, I went to a neurologist, and the neurologist, probably ill-advisedly, told me exactly what he suspected I was having, the disease I was expected to have. But it was still good to take a brain scan, and after I take a brain scan, after uh, two plus weeks, we'll be able to see the result and confirm. But he was already preparing me for it. 
And this disease that he said that he believed I had, essentially, if I had that disease, I had maximum three years to live. Maximum three years. Most people don't make it beyond a year. And I literally finished with him and I was traveling next, uh, I think that day or the next day to the US. Every single morning, every single evening, once I thought about it, that sensation just came up, that negative, you know, this, wow. I just think, wow, so my children are not going to grow up. I'm not going to see any of them get married. You know, different things. Who's going to look after my wife? But it just, there was a feeling. And there are two other things that had happened in my life that I felt that feeling. When my wife discovered that she was pregnant, I felt that feeling. That's how I felt. And yes, you know, I shared with a few friends, and we said, ah, you know, well, it wasn't what they expected, but God, God, you know, children are this, that, that, that. But inside, I was feeling it. Two weeks into that, I had to confront you. You know, God confronted me and said, why are you feeling this way? And I was like, yeah, why am I feeling this way? Because this is the feeling of mourning a loss of something. I'm not losing something. I'm gaining a child. I'm gaining, and children are gifts from God. Why am I mourning? Why do I feel like I'm mourning? After all, maybe it gives me the opportunity of getting the girl I always wanted. I said opportunity. I didn't say, I'm not announcing anything. Cool down. Be praying for us. God can change blue into pink. You don't know. Why am I not rejoicing? Why do I feel a sense of tragedy and the Lord showed it to me? Because you are mourning the loss of something, you have planned the rest of your life. I had a plan for my life, I can't lie to you, and it did not include having a child in the 40s. I didn't. I've even advised people that get married, immediately get a baby. I said, because, you know, by the time you're 70, your first child probably is just having their own first grandchild too. And you won't be able to, you know, no apologies to grandparents here, but you know, you can't carry them well. You can't say, hey, grandpa, push me, push me. It's just, grandpa, push you, one leg will break. I said, I didn't want that. I didn't want a situation. I have done open day. I have sat down on small stool. I felt like I, I, I can't do this thing again. Do you know what it is to go for children's uh, inter-house sport, primary inter-house sport, and you have to smile as though that they're all doing well. They, they're just running up and down. I said, I have paid this price, God. I said, I want to be traveling and it's just me and my wife. My wife and I did not travel with the children for about four or five years until they became independent. How many people do you want to be carrying to the toilet? So I, I, I have planned my life and it did not include a child. In my 40s, I didn't want that. I said, God, do you know what this means? At some point, I will have a child in university, in secondary school and primary school. I'll be torn apart. You who plan and say tomorrow it will be like this tomorrow instead of you to say it is the Lord's will and I went through a process that showed me the Lord's will ultimately not my own will but the Lord's will is the better one for me may the Lord deliver us from idolatrous planning but the second one is who I call complainers you see the planners usually are people who are leaders and in, in places of authority and so they have to execute plans. They have to come up with plans and execute plans for others. But the complainers are those who usually are not in a place of authority. They are meant to be, quote-unquote, controlled. But actually, they can't be controlled. They control. For a lot of women here who are married, I'm not making a statement about authority or anything. But let me tell you this. Have you ever heard of the analogy that goes something like this? The husband is the head of the home, but the wife is the neck of the husband. Yo, have you, and how many of you say amen? If you say amen, this is you we are talking about. You are not the head, but the neck is able to control. And so in the patriarchal society, Solomon is talking about a woman that does that. Look at Proverbs 27, verse 15 to 16. It says, a quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Have, have you ever heard, you know, maybe you had a, a, a tap that, the, you know those taps where it's closed, but nothing, is, to, to, and this is just driving you insane. Just drive, can, can I find a way of stopping this? It's a quarrelsome life. wife is like that. So you can't control her. This is what it says, verse 16. It says, restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. It's not possible. They can't be controlled, but they control. 
Another place he talks about the nagging, the nagging. And so, how can you identify if you are somebody who also has this idolatrous sense of control, but you are expressing it as a complainer, not a planner? Let me give you some examples of symptoms, eight of them. All right, let's go. First one is, you complain a lot about how you are led, irrespective of the leader. Every church you go to, the pastor is this. The deacon is this. Every place you go, my boss, my boss, my boss. When you speak to them for the first time, you think, ah, this boss is terrible. Until you find out that the, the last six bosses have been like that. The, who is the common denominator in all those situations? And very linked to that is the next one too. Is that they consistently complain about the same thing. One person, you say, I'm just confiding in you, my, my friend. I'm just confiding in you, we're in the same department. I'm just confiding with you because... We have the same ethnicity. I'm just convinced. You, do you understand? You keep going all around. Because you are, you are not satisfied with situation. Next one, next one. Keep going. Next one. Um, uh, you skew proportional reality. What do I mean by that? In every situation you find yourself, somehow you are able to magnify the little problems and you diminish the greater gains. So you complain about the small issues as though this whole place is coming to a, well, it's, it's going to end. Though. And somebody will say, I know there are problems. But we are making progress. We progress. Look at all the look, little, little things here. But there are big things. So you skew proportional reality more. Um, you are dissatisfied with being heard until agreed with. I put um, just a small explanation. In other words, you conflate listening with agreement. So, uh, 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 I made my complaints heard, but they didn't change it according to what it is. The people here don't listen. And I know sometimes it's true, they don't listen, and that's why they, they didn't agree with you. But sometimes, you know what they did? They listened. They just knew that they disagreed with you. Listening doesn't mean they have to agree. Because if they listen to two or three other people, all of you are saying different things. So, what should they do? Change it. When the next time the second person comes, change it. Next time the third person comes, change it. And this one is linked to the other thing, to this next one. It's, you feel bitter, not happy, if your prior complaint is eventually adopted, but on the recommendation of another person. I thought you were giving that uh, advice because you wanted things to be better. Oh, but now, they didn't listen to you, but they listened to somebody else. And now, you now find a way of making it bad again. You're like, you see what I'm saying? They don't listen to this place. You are now bitter. But I thought it was about the thing. No, it was about you. That's why you are bitter, even though it has been adopted. Rather than you look at the fact that maybe it's the way you presented it, or maybe the fact that it was the 18th complaint in 18 days. So you tuned, they tuned off. Can I give you a few more? You often don't admit the flaws in your methods. You can't see it because you just want to get it done. And very linked to this is a problem is the next one, which is this. You often don't see complexity. Every problem in the world is very simple. Very simple. I'm not saying this one is just a broader thing, but how do we solve the inflation? The government doesn't care. If they care, what would they do? Solve it. 200 million people, solve the problem. There's no way, there's no way, I don't care who the, the economist is today, there is nothing they can do that will immediately solve the problem tomorrow. And some of us bring that kind of mentality even into our smaller teams. This, that, that. You don't see complexity. Everything can be solved. If, I, if, if only they just did this. Because we want to gain some kind of control. And finally, this one, maybe if you have been in a Christian setting or some kind of nice motivational setup or some kind of, uh, they've given you some kind of guru or coach. You say, ah, before you offer any critique, offer a couple of Compliments. So you now say, eh, is that how it works? Okay, eh, ah, I've not offered compliments in a long time. Oh. Your wife's fingernails look actually nice. Eh, so that thing I want to talk about, about this department. You, you just come up, you don't actually offer genuine things. Are you seeing yourself in this place? Or are you seeing your neighbor? Have you, are you saying that my co-worker, I wish he was here? Because the first way we get delivered is we discover. And that takes me to the second point. Taking control. You know the funny thing about the idol of control? The idol of control works in a very subversive way. 
it wants us to feel like we're in control. So whether we're just idolatrous planners or idolatrous, idolatrous complainers, what we're trying to do is take control. But what we don't know is that the more we're trying to take control in an idolatrous way, the idol of control is actually playing us like puppets. So we are, when we are trying to take control, we are not really in control. Something is controlling us. Did, did you get that? The more we try to exercise that control in an idolatrous way, we are only demonstrating that we are being possessed by the idol of control. So what must we do? Take control. Somebody say take control. Take control, but we take control of the idol of control. So in verse 14, it says this. There's one way you do that is to remember something. It says, what is your life? You know, in Lagos, or in particular Lagos, because... I've been to Port Harcourt and some of those places. Um, they don't talk too much. In Lagos, you, we know who you are by you telling us who you are. You know, I, I knew in Port Harcourt, when somebody, um, when somebody annoys you and you knew you are stronger, you will slap the person first and say, do you know who I am? In Lagos, when somebody annoys you, I will slap you. I will slap, do you know who I am? Let me tell you who you are not. You are not God. That's what he's saying. What is your life, self? You are here today. You are like a mist that is here today. I are gone tomorrow. The idol of control makes you want to play God. The first thing we need to remember is this. We are not who? God. He says, what is it that you don't even know tomorrow? We think we know too much. You don't even know tomorrow. Yes, we can use the history to predict the future, but many times we miss it. Even the best experts in the world could not see COVID-19 coming. We don't know tomorrow. You may think that you have some power. Immediately you gain some kind of authority. Maybe you've been able to influence some stuff. But and maybe you think you are indispensable. The cemetery is filled with people that we once said were indispensable. And the world has moved on. They're not as powerful as you think. Think you can be here. Uh, you can be... I have... I have a, a, a security cameras that enables me to see many things. Or I, I, I work from a, an 18 story building. Ah, you make, it makes you feel like you are God. You're like you're everywhere. You're still limited. Even if you install security cameras in all your, your house, your office, you have 40 screens. You can't see all the 40 screens at the same time. You are not God. So, how do we remind ourselves that we are not God? Because it's a problem. Think about it. Even in parties. Lagos parties, that's where you see people. Somebody that has not, he has never exercised any influence anywhere. Somebody just tells him, you know what, you are going to man the, the food today. Yeah? I'll man the food. Power. And so all of a sudden, maybe some people came in and they talked to him anyhow. Eh, you'll come and meet me. So they now come, what do you want? Offer the rice. Eh, okay, give them rice. Don't put any meat. Just put more. Why are you? And so you, Nasa, say, ah, what is this? Okay, give me snail. Give them um, shaki. Ah! And then not normally, I know there's one meme that even goes around. You just feel enraged. You say, you are not God. I have jollof rice. I have kidney. You are not. Don't think. Ah, should we need to remind ourselves we are not God. How can we do that? Let me give you two ways. Use the failures and the successes in your attempts of control to remind you that you are not God. Use your failures and your successes in your attempts of control to remind you that you are not God. What do I mean? Failures. Every time you fail on a thing, every time you fail on a thing, rather than lose self-esteem or pretend it didn't happen, let it humble you and remind you that you are not God. Listen, when, we're good, uh, when the plan to start City Church came up, and to, that was probably late 2013, 2014, my wife and I were still in the UK, there was a plan there. I drew up a plan, did everything, and I needed to persuade people to support us financially. I needed to persuade people to pray with us there. And to the glory of God, I thought my persuading abilities were good. And people signed up to support us financially. People signed up to pray with us. I, I, I was on a roll. I'm like, I can't persuade people. So I came with that same confidence back into Nigeria and I remembered a lot of my old friends that I felt would be able to join us, the core group, so that we'll start this church. You know, this vision is excellent. Oh, tight. You know, this plan is excellent. Why would you want to be part of it? And we're friends. And you guys used to say, ah, Femi, you will be something. You, you'll be, here I am. I persuaded them. I did everything. Do you know how many of my old friends that I contacted eventually joined the core group? Zero. Zero. 
Now, I could have said something like this. Eh, well, this one, he lives very far. Eh, this one, you know, I always knew that they won't amount to anything. So they can't see. You know, this one, I could... You can make all of those excuses. And let me not lie. Some of the reasons, things like they were in, already in certain places, they were living very far. It's true. But ultimately, I failed at persuading them. I did. Because if I were God, the heart of a king is in God's hand and is able to sway it. And it doesn't matter what the circumstance is. The truth is that I am not ultimately in control. I am not God. I am not using it to bring down my self-esteem. No, don't use failure for that. Neither am I going to pretend it didn't happen. I'm trying to say I accept it. And it is God's gift to remind me that I am not God. Practice your using your failures to remind yourself that you are not God. It will be liberating. Amen. But all about your successes. What if something works out? How does that one remind you that you are not God? Actually, what you need to do is to remember that in every success, that every successful thing that your control has worked out for you, there are factors that were contributed to that success that are beyond your control. So like now, I teach pastors, I teach church planters about some of the principles and the things that we use that work for us in city church. And I remember in the early days, as I was teaching them, I used to just say it very, very easily. Just do this, do this, do this, And it would be like they are dizzy. And they will come back and they didn't do it. I'm like, why didn't you do it? Now that's why it's not working. I'll explain again. And until one day it came to me that, ah, what you're trying to explain, it comes out easily for you because of unique abilities that you have that they don't have. It comes out easily for me because of unique experiences that you have that they don't have. How did you gain those abilities? I just worked very hard. Nonsense. First of all, let me tell you the f number one thing that gave me some of the abilities that I have. My parents. Their genes. Just even their genes. What control did I have in my parents giving birth to me? I just showed up. They met each other, they liked each other, they slept on the same bed, I showed up. <laughs> you understand? If I had control over it, do you think I would be the second born? I would be the first born. But I was the second born. Now, I'm happy I was the only boy, so that one was okay. But also, I don't have any, I don't have any power over my, my parents' economic um, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, status. I don't have any uh, 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 control over what schools they sent me to. I don't have any control about oh, so many things. The people that they sent me to, me uh, to mentor me. All of those things, I had no control. So when I was saying those things, I'm recommending those things. It's true I have worked hard. It's true that I have put myself to study. But there's far more that I had no control over that brought about that success. I am not God. And even in my successes, I have to acknowledge that there are many factors beyond my control. Use your successes to remind you that who you are not what? Why am I saying this thing? And I don't want you to do it once. I need to practice. Because every time you go out in the world, something is trying to tell you that you should have been in control and you failed. Another one is trying to tell you that you were in control and you succeeded. And they are culturing you and forming you into who God doesn't want you to be. Remind yourself every time with your failures and your successes that you are not God. This is how we take control of the idol of control over our lives. Amen? Finally, losing control. What I've just said about taking control because you are not God is actually what we call a defensive strategy. It's not an offensive one. What I mean by that, if you football, basketball, all that, if you're a coach, you always have to have a defensive strategy and an offensive strategy. If you only have a defensive strategy and it's fantastic, guess what? Nobody will score you. But the best thing that you get is what we call a draw, a zero-zero draw. No one scored against you but because you have no offensive strategy, you can't score. It is good to have a defensive strategy. You plug the gaps in the, in the holes that are leaking. Yes, but we don't exist to just plug the, the, the gaps. We don't exist to just take control of the idol of control. We exist for something more, to live out the lives God has called us to live in liberty. So what's our offensive strategy? If taking control is the offensive strategy, the defensive strategy, what is the offensive strategy? How many of us have had to speak somewhere, make a presentation, and you are nervous? I mean, yeah. How many of us have had to take an exam and you are nervous? Anybody? There's a guy called John Smith Jr. He was 
doing a lot of other things, but his real passion, where his abilities lie, well, he wanted to be a singer, to be more precise. He wanted to be a rapper. He had um, those talents. And when he was upcoming, the best way to establish yourself was through what they call rap battles. If you don't know what a, do you know what a rap battle is, a rap battle is when, especially on the underground scenes in the evening, you go and you battle another rapper. And so you say certain things in which you are dissing or you are insulting that rapper, but you are saying it in rhymes. And then he comes back at you and you come back and you come back and then there, there's a crowd around and they determine who the winner is. And at some point, you know, maybe it's you or the other person. John Smith had a lot of talent, but he had a lot of nerves every time he entered into a rap battle. In fact, his stage name was B. Rabbit and someone wrote a song about how his predicament and eventually gave a solution. He said something like this. He said, his palms are sweaty, his knees are weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom, spaghetti. He's nervous, but on the surface, he seems calm and ready to drop bombs, but he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. The whole crowd goes so loud. He opens his mouth, but the words won't come out. So he describes the predicament. What do you think the solution is going to be? Take control of your nerves. Take control of your musical abilities. Take control. Just take control. If you do that, that's just a defensive strategy. And it works in one way, but there is something higher than taking control. There was something higher than just taking control of the, of the idols. There is something higher. You know what he eventually says the solution is not take control, but lose yourself in the music. In other words, he's saying it is actually when you lose yourself that you own it. Lose yourself in the music. The moment you own it, you better never let it go. Lose yourself. And for us, we can take control of the idols because the idols are not truly gods and we are not gods. But that presumes that there is a real God. Whilst we lose or take control of the idols, let us lose ourselves into the living God. That is our offensive strategy. When we lose control, to God, then he controls our life and makes us who we are meant to be. Amen? How can you do that? Three quick things. One, study about him. Remember I asked those three questions. What do you know? What power do you have? Where can you be? When you study about this God, you find out that even though your knowledge is limited, he's the omnipotent one, uh, omniscient one. He lacks no limits. When I ask about the power, the, he's the almighty, the omnipotent one. There is nothing he can't do. When I said that you are limited in your presence, well, this one, the heavens and the heavens of the heavens cannot contain him. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Study about the one you are meant to lose control to. That's the basis. But the other two things are when you have set the foundation, these are the things that you practically really do that gives you that level of loss of control in him. The first one, Worship. Oh, may we be worshippers. Because what is this? You have studied about the God, but you have not yet met with the God. When you worship, it brings you into a greater reality. Worship enables, helps us both in our failures and in our successes. There was a guy called Job. He got to a place where he had totally failed. Failed, lost everything. His wife said, let me give you advice. Curse God and die. You know what Job said in Job 121? This is what he said. He said this. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be what? Praised. In his failure, he was able to give praise to God. Now, some people say this is morbid fatalism. What kind of nonsense is that? Are you denying how I feel? No. In fact, you go in your disappointment to the Lord in praise. But what you are saying is this. I see the Lord. I don't just see my failures. I don't just see the disappointment. And I'm saying that my failures and disappointments are not God. There is a God that still controls my life. These things will ultimately not control me. And so when you come to a place of worship, you are seeing the reality of there is a God truly. And it gives you the strength to carry on. But what about in your successes? 
It says that before the throne of God, there are these majestic angelic beings. Some of them, are, they're called the 24 elders. They obviously have some sense of authority and they had crowns on their head. Maybe some sense of achievement when they were before the one who sits on the throne. They knew that there are crowns and they knew there's another crown. He says they cast their crowns before him. You see, when we come together on a Sunday, part of what we do when we worship, I don't know how your week has gone. Some of you come in, you failed in the week. Some of you come in, you've had a great week. What worship does is that it resets us. For those who have failed, you remember that your conditions are not the things that define you. For those who have succeeded, as those things are trying to tell you that you are God, you are saying, oh, Lord, there are crowns, but there, are, there is a crown. Cast it down before him. finally there's one more thing because remember in verse 15 it says don't say I will do this and do this and do this he said instead say if it is the Lord's will the best illustration I can see of verse 15 is with the Lord Jesus Christ himself Jesus he says before the crucifixion was overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death Please don't pretend like you understand what that means. It's not like somebody who has been given a death sentence, even though that is terrifying. None of us has, has, has that. It's worse. Because Jesus did not just die on the cross. Jesus was about to experience the kind of suffering no human being has ever and will never experience. It wasn't just death. It was the weight of the wrath of God visited upon the sin of the world. Do you know what that is? I don't. Literally what Jesus experienced was the punishment of hell. But not the punishment of hell for one person. For all that will believe in him. So excuse me, even though he was God, excuse me that he felt terrified about the situation. In fact, he didn't just feel terrified about it. He started to contemplate whether or not to go ahead with it. He knew it was the will of God. He already had sorted out the theology about that. Just read the entire gospel. He he knew that was what he was born for. And yet, when he came to the point of decision, he was wondering, do I need to go about this? Should I follow God's will? And some of us are in that situation too. Maybe losing that relationship, which you know is not the will of God for you. are saying, do you know what it is to be single at 36? Maybe not going ahead with that small, you know, corner corner for that business. Do you know how long I have worked for it? Or maybe it's just a thing of acceptance. I'm going through a very difficult situation and I don't know whether or not God is... In, I, 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 I've just given up on God. Here's what Jesus did. Before he went there, in verse 36 of Matthew 26, he says, he went to a place called Gethsemane and with his disciples. You know what he went to do? He said he went there to pray. if you study the Bible and study theology a lot and that's all you do you run the risk of also still trying to exercise control by trying to show people that my theology is better than yours my understanding of God is better than yours you can argue with people about a God that you have studied but you don't know it is in worship and in prayer that you meet with that God so Jesus when he was struggling with God's will as some of us are struggling with God's will he didn't just explain about the sovereignty of God Jesus went in prayer to the sovereign God and he didn't just do it once. Because sometimes we pray about something and we come out and we feel, ah, man, I am now ready to take on the world. Three days after, you are weak again. So Jesus, I haven't gone to the disciples. He said, you guys could not keep watch with me for one hour. He said, if you just pray once, it's not enough. You need to pray longer. You need to pray more. He said, why? Because you will fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we pray again and again to discipline our flesh. That's why he said in verse 42 that Jesus went a second time and prayed. And listen, it was in that prayer that James 4.15, we could see it come to pass. Jesus eventually said, Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may what? Your will be done. He knew what that will was. But it took consistent prayer, particularly in the difficult times, to stay with God, to see God, to behold his beauty, to know that it was true, to know that he's all that there is and that his will is the ultimate and best thing for our lives. And then he submitted. And in Luke's version, he said, after he did that, 
And this is my prayer for every single one of us here. It says an angel came from heaven and strengthened him. May the Lord strengthen you in that decision you need to take. Jesus eventually went to the cross. And do you know the last words of Jesus to show you that those, that prayer was effective? The last wo words of Jesus were literally one that says, I fully surrender. He said, Lord, into, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Who wants to commit their spirit and their, their hearts to the Lord this morning? Can we rise to our feet? Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.